So seven guys go fishing. What did they see? Sounds like the beginning of a riddle or a really bad joke. This morning, it's neither. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul declared that Christians, true believers, walk by faith and not by sight. But do we? You know, I wasn't sure if I was going to say anything about the shirt or July 4th or, you know, this weekend, Pastor John's not here because they're... Their son, Colin, got married this weekend, and we wish them all the best. I love our country, but boy, it's troubling. But last week was a pretty good week. SCOTUS made some pretty encouraging decisions, and here in the state of Georgia, there were a couple of laws that went into effect that show that the entire country hasn't lost their minds. But this whole notion of being dominated by what we see as opposed to our faith has some ramifications. Because speaking for myself, I have to admit that this is an area where I believe I could work more, walk more by my faith than by my sight. Why is it that most of us tend to live more like Thomas, like we're descended from Thomas who John covered last week in the sense that he would not believe, period. I will not believe unless I see it and put my hands on it and touch it. But I would say that by doing so, that's keeping us from walking more by our faith than by our sight. Seven men went out fishing one night, and by the time they finished breakfast the next day, they learned something about themselves and what Paul meant when he penned those words to the Corinthians some 30 years later about their faith. And that is that God requires faith. He does not require sight. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Pray with me. Father, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to address this text, which I will confess in a moment, as you well know, has given me some trouble over the years and that you have remedied that by your grace. And I'm grateful for that. And I pray the same on anyone who is hearing that likewise has had some challenge here. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 21. Believe it or not, week 84, we're in the last chapter. Verse 1, after this, after what? Well, if you weren't here last week, <clears throat> the, last verse, the previous chapter tells us that Jesus had performed many other signs. That's the this. Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana, in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. We don't know how much time has passed since Jesus performed those many other signs that were noted in chapter 20, but some time has passed. For one thing, we're in Galilee. We're no longer in Jerusalem. And apparently... 
Peter wasn't any more patient than I am because sitting around, he just decides, I'm going fishing. His buddies say, we're going to go with you. You wouldn't think that those three, not, that isn't even three complete verses. We, have, we only got halfway through verse three. In those two and a half verses that there could be a load of controversy. I sure didn't, but I was wrong. When I started reading the commentaries, there are literally volumes on these two and a half verses. First, it was about how long was it after the encounter with Thomas. Next, it was why did John call it the Sea of Tiberias. Then there were the two others, the unnamed disciples. Recall that. Write that down. Unnamed. They want to know who they are. This is where I have to admit that I am nowhere close to being scholar material. Because while I'm naturally inquisitive, I do not have what it takes to grind over things like this. To me, John is simply introducing his next story. Does it really matter how long after the encounter with Thomas? It was clearly before the ascension. That works for me, right? Next, depending on where you lived, Tiberius, Gennesaret, or Galilee were historically interchangeable names for this body of water that was north of Samaria, north of Jerusalem. Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Genesaret. That's what it was. And if God wanted us to know the names of the two disciples, here's a clue. I think he'd have named them. Why we would spend any energy whatsoever trying to figure out something that God intentionally didn't name is beyond me. I just don't get it. Here's what we have. We have Peter and six of his buddies. They're back in Galilee. They're probably a little bit bored, and they decide to go fishing. Verse 3, again. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. This is where things begin to get interesting, at least for me. We have professional fishermen. They go out for an entire night of fishing, and by daybreak, they have caught nothing. Now, I don't fish. Yes, this is a golf shirt. I don't fish, which is really a shame because I'm told that here is like heaven for fishermen. It's just a splendid place to be a fishing individual, and I don't know, it, you know, maybe it's unusual for people to go out all night and not catch a single fish, even professional fishermen, but to me, that's a bit of a stretch. You know, that, you know, something strange has happened here. You would have thought that they'd come back after an entire night with some fish, but that's not the only strange thing. To me, the most interesting aspect of this entire narrative is first hinted at right here. Jesus stood on the shore, but they didn't know it was him. As we'll see in a few minutes, they're about 100 yards away, so at this point, it's entirely understandable that they may not have recognized him, but this is our first hint that there's something about Jesus is apparently different. Verse 5. Men, Jesus called to them, You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish.
Now, if any of you are reading along in an ESV Bible, the first word there is what? Children. Instead of men. Jesus chose a very interesting word here, and as with all of Scripture, it was quite intentional, not a mistake. In the Greek word here is the word pation, and it doesn't occur a whole lot in Scripture, but when it does, it typically refers to children. Like in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod sent his soldiers to go off to Bethlehem and search diligently for the pation, the child. Same word. ESV decided to stick with it here. Perfectly fine. I get it. That's fine. But 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul used it like this. Brethren, don't be paddying. <clears throat> don't be childish in your thinking. Be infants in regard to evil, adults in your thinking. So like a lot of words, there can be different meanings depending on contexts. So why did Jesus use patty in here? Glad you asked. But I'm not going to tell you for a little bit, so hang in there with me. Verse 7. Therefore, well, we know what that word means. Something before is now different, right? The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped and plunged into the sea. But since they were not, they, they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, pardon me, <clears throat> about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and some bread. Bring some of the fish that you have caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them to be precise. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. So our narrative has transitioned from the introduction, right, with the therefore, that signals something, and begins with John's preferred way of referring to himself. I kind of like this, actually, you know, that, that the one that Jesus loved. And what did he do? He blurted out, it is the Lord. Now, this is as good a time as any to share with you and remind you that back in Matthew chapter 26, verse 32, before Jesus was crucified, he said, wait for me, and he told them where. He said, wait for me, but after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to where? Galilee. Now, you know that the disciples are no longer in Jerusalem. We know that. They returned to the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias, whichever one of them you like. And at least one of them, John, was on the lookout for Jesus. It's the Lord, 100 yards away. He must have been a young man because 100 yards away, my eyesight right now isn't worth a flip. But he, that, that was his conclusion because he was looking for Jesus. That's going to be important, actually. So which explains his conclusion, even though they were 100 yards away? Now, anybody here think that the original has the word 100 yards? No. 200 cubits. Anybody know what a cubit is? Cubits are fascinating. There, Wade. Wade's got it. Tip of your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. You want to hear a fascinating thing? That no matter how tall you are, that's generally a very close distance. It doesn't matter tall or short. It does matter between men or women. I will say that. But it's, 
eight, roughly 18 inches. 18 inches, 200 of them, 300 feet. 300 feet is equal to what? The length of a football field, 100 yards. There you have it. So Peter must have figured that John was right. He was so excited that he threw on his outer garment, jumped into the water, and began dragging this net full of fish. Oh, and about that parenthetical, for he was stripped. Well, he might have been well, you know. But more likely, he was working in his undergarments. It's, you know, it's a sort of a, a sheer thing. It's much more comfortable in the heat while you're working. They finally got to shore, and verse 10 says, Jesus already had a fire going and some food prepared. But as we'll see in verse 12 shortly, they still weren't sure it was him, even though they were very close now. They still didn't recognize him. Now, this is where it begins to be a struggle for me. I'm just talking to you about me. It shouldn't be you. You'd think that the closer they got, the surer they would be. But they weren't. Something about Jesus was different. And as our Pastor John has pointed out several times over the last month or so, there are many supernatural events recorded in the last few chapters of the Gospel of John. Conversations with angels, a resurrection from the dead, Jesus appearing out of nowhere in a locked room. The list is fairly extensive. And even this net not tearing under the burden of 153 large fish is considered one of them as well. Different from the way it was back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus challenged Peter to put the net in, in the water, but the net began to tear. Here it does not. For me, the most supernatural event recorded here and elsewhere is that they were with him up close and personal around a fire and they still weren't sure it was him. Look with me at verse 12. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Now, that sentence doesn't work for me. Okay? I'm just being honest. Nobody dared ask him, which means what? They weren't sure. They just knew it was him. This has been a great struggle for me. Why couldn't they recognize him? I'm just talking about the pragmatic side of Roy. I love science. I love the fact that all of these things that God has done, generally speaking, there's a, there's a legitimate reason that it can be explained. Not everything can be explained. You can't explain you know, people have attempted to explain the splitting of the Red Sea. I mean, there's been all kinds of stuff gone on, but some things, like the only recorded in all recorded human history, the only person who resurrected from the dead of his own accord. It's supernatural. There are some supernatural things that are just part of Scripture, and not just here. <clears throat> There's Mary's exchange with the gardener, the gardener, and the guys on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Why could they not recognize Jesus? Speaking for Roy and Roy alone, that was something that kind of really was unsettling to me for quite some time, actually. Am I the only one who's ever wrestled with any of that? I mean, possibly, but at least I'll take you through my journey and the rest of this. 
And if it was, fine. If not, okay, great, good for you. (laughs) All of Christianity is based on the unprecedented, undeniable supernatural event of Jesus returning from dead, being dead. Paul summed up how critical this is quite beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15 when he wrote the words in verse 19, if Christ is not risen, we should be pitied. I take it even further. If Christ is not risen, what are we doing here? Seriously, why are we doing this? This is not a club. If Christ is not risen, why are you coming to church? It's a valid question. My point is this. In that very same passage, Paul gives us insight into why I believe the disciples didn't immediately recognize Jesus. This is where I came, I mean, I got here. It took me a while to get here. God, took, and God was gracious to me. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, just five verses before that summation I just read for you, Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without faith, is without foundation, and so is your faith. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is without any foundation. The object of our faith, not a thing. If he's not raised, this is, this is a big waste of time. You marry that with Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 6, which you guys, if you hear me, I'm, I'm, I pretty much get there, if I can, almost every sermon. Even John had it last week, which I thought was awesome. In our passage, it, the, the reason for today's title of my sermon, now, without faith, I'm going to attempt to explain. Okay? In our passage, Mary in the garden, the travels on the road to Emmaus, each of these people were coming to grips with what had just happened. Faith is the reality of things hoped for, right? The proof of things that are not seen. Hope is critically important because every one of these people recently had their hopes crushed. They had placed their hopes in a certain kind of Messiah. And those hopes were nailed to a cross and died. I learned something about myself, as I've been saying here, when trying to understand why they couldn't recognize Jesus. And that is that my faith, like their faith, at times can be clouded by who we want Jesus to be. The Jesus we want. This is what I found. The older I get and the more times I've read my Bible, the more I realize that the Jesus in the Bible is quite different from the Jesus being taught in many churches. Good intentions and open-mindedness in and of themselves are not terrible things, but they are when they lead to error. When those who walked with Jesus for three solid years couldn't recognize him when they were standing next to him in a fire, something was different. And I believe at least one reason had to do with their faith at that time. In each post-resurrection occurrence, when Jesus wasn't immediately recognized, here it comes, 
Jesus did or said something that broke through whatever was preventing them from recognizing him. You hear me? This may explain why Jesus used the word padion. Remember I said we'd come back to it? Padion. It's an interesting word. Because they were spiritually children, just like what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. They couldn't, they couldn't get there yet because their faith hadn't got there yet. Their hopes were still tied to a Jesus that was different from the one he turned out to be. Hebrews 11.6, now without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. You might even say it's impossible to see him. <clears throat> because he's a rewarder of them who believe he exists and rewards those who seek him as he is, not as they or you want him to be. Here's what I'm suggesting. Without faith in who Jesus really is, who he actually is, they were unable to recognize him. This can happen when Jesus, the Jesus that we want and hope for is different than the actual real Jesus. The Jesus recorded and prophesied in Scripture. The Jesus who's sitting right now at the right hand of his Father. The Jesus who spoke to us through his Gospels. The Jesus who taught them about his Father's kingdom. The Jesus who sadly is very different from the Jesus being portrayed in too many so-called churches today. Now, I'm wielding it now because... I didn't hear what I'm about to say personally, so this, you could say, is third-party rumor, would be thrown out of court, all of those things, right? But I was told recently that according to a church here in this town that Jesus was incapable of doing what he did without the help of his disciples. I got news for you, folks. That is straight-out heresy. It just is. It's a lie. If he needed help, he wouldn't be God. Now, does he work with us? Does he, does he include us in his wonderful things? Of course he does. But he don't need us. He certainly doesn't need me. I just don't understand how that kind of stuff could go on in some place that's actually called the Christian church. I just can't. The... I mean, how is that even possible? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, the same way that the, the disciples right here couldn't recognize Jesus. It's exactly the same way. The faith in Christ, when faith in Christ is based in what we want, and when that's different from the Jesus portrayed in Scripture, all kinds of error are, and sin are possible. God's word is quite clear. He can only be approached on his terms. Read the Old Testament. It's pretty severe stuff, right? Jesus made it a way load easier, right? But the thing is, when it comes to Jesus, he is the verse that gets everybody in a twist, the way, the truth, the life, and what's the next words? No one comes to the Father but through me. Not me, him. 
Access is through his son. And while as, as wildly unpopular as that is, it is nevertheless the only way to approach God according to Scripture, according to his word. You know, recently, Richard has been leading a study, and uh, it, several of our elders have been participating, as well as myself, in, in the foundations class across the street before church. And we've been covering some of the real, some of the more nattier matters recently in election, predestination, salvation, sanctification. And I have to tell you that while, while covering those topics, we, you know, I think all of us discovered something else about faith that the faith the disciples needed to recognize Jesus is the very same kind of faith required to understand the weightier merit matters of theology. Let me say that again without stumbling or trying. The faith that is required to understand and see and recognize Jesus is the same faith that you need to understand the weightier matters of theology that are found in God's word, not what we think about God's word, what his actual word says. And by the way, I'm happy to report to you that no matter where you are in your faith walk, I should have thrown up the faith walk thing, right? The faith walk where you're lost on this side and you're making your way along and you're getting closer and your faith is getting stronger as you're moving closer and closer to being conformed to Jesus, right? Guess who gives you the ability, who gives you the faith? God himself. You can't work it up. It's not a matter of how hard you try, how smart you are, how dig you deep. What it boils down to is James 1.5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask God, who gives generously without reproach. That means no matter how bad you've been, God's saying, come on, and it will be given to you. It's pretty encouraging. This cannot be said too frequently, in my opinion. We have to remind ourselves all the time that all we need is Scripture, God's Word, and trusting in Him for our hope and for our faith. I'll prove it. Verse 13. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. Now, this was the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Once the disciples saw this man on the beach give them bread and fish, something happened. Anybody want to take a guess? They remembered something, didn't they? They remembered Jesus feeding the 5,000. They remembered Jesus feeding the 4,000. It clicked. Something that they could remember. For us, they remember Jesus doing it, which was really grand to be them. We get to read it in the gospel accounts. But let me tell you, the gospel of, I mean, the apostle John was no longer had any doubt whatsoever that it was Jesus because he just matter-of-factly states in verse 14, this was the third time Jesus appeared to us. Something about the way Jesus looked absolutely looked different after the resurrection. Had to. 
Had to. And there's a whole lot of things you could speculate about that, but that's what it would be, speculation, so we're not going there. Okay? Once they believed in their, and they really believed in their faith enabled them to see the Jesus who truly is, not the Jesus that they wanted him to be, that made all the difference. For John, this is him. This is the third time he appeared. It's pretty cool, you know, for them. For us, our hope has to be invested in the Jesus of Scripture that's given to us in the Gospels. Now, I need to emphasize this. This is how I settled the difficulty that I had with the passages talking about them failing to recognize them. You may not have that, but you, of course, are welcome to come and draw your own conclusions. What I'm sharing with you is that every single one of us who speak up here, no matter how renowned or not renowned, it, every one of us have come to moments when we read something in Scripture and it hits us a certain way and we struggle. For me, this was it. You know, there aren't a whole lot of stuff because, I mean, I'm old now. You know, God's kept at it with me and I'm, I'm less uncomfortable about all of it. But I can understand anybody saying, wow, what, what? Okay, it's a matter of faith. So what are our takeaways this week? Is, that, is doubt a head or a heart issue? It's not a riddle. It's both, right? If your faith is based on other, anything other than the resurrected Jesus, the Jesus who had to die for my sins and yours, the Jesus who supernaturally resurrected from the dead, if you have trouble with any of that, then your doubts are a warning to you. I'd go so far as saying that your doubts are actually the Holy Spirit talking to you and calling you to rely on Jesus and Him alone for your salvation. Hands with the practical side of that Spirit's call. If you're not sure, come see John, Jeremy. Well, John, not this week. But John, Jeremy, Mitch, myself, any of the elders, I promise you, we would welcome the opportunity to discuss your doubts because those doubts are God talking to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for passages like this, the practical side and ramifications of the resurrection and the appearances that Jesus made. Thank you that you are patient with us when we struggle, any of us. And thank you so much, Lord, for your love for us and for Jesus. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.